0: Welcome to the Moulding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of a healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Philip Lowe about prediction psychology from a registered counseling psychologist perspective. Hello, welcome to the show, and really glad to have you on board again. I mean, you you actually a repeat uh, guest on our show, so very thankful for that. And talking about prediction psychology from a registered counselling psychologist perspective, thanks so much for doing this.
1: No worries. Thanks so much for having me again.
0: Um, yeah, always a pleasure, and and it's even more of a pleasure if someone decided they're going to come back because obviously the experience wasn't too bad. Then, um, so yeah, I'm very thankful and grateful for that um I'm not even going to try to introduce this topic so I'm just going to ask you to to help us with it but what is prediction psychology
1: okay, so prediction psychology is is something new so I think most of the people that uh, listen to this wouldn't have heard of prediction psychology so prediction psychology itself is, is something that a colleague of of mine and myself have started to develop kind of linking current neuroscience around the way that the brain functions um, to actual application of that um, information. So prediction psychology uh, falls within the framework of the uh, predictive processing. So predictive processing is a specific way of seeing the brain and how the brain makes sense of the world um, as predominantly a prediction engine. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the the short way of seeing it that prediction uh, processing is is that part of the brain as a prediction engine and prediction psychology is basically our question. Now, given that we understand the brain as a prediction engine, how do we actually apply that knowledge to understand our clients, understand what they're going through and understand um, actually what to do um, in terms of psychopathology from this framework?
0: Okay. I like Very exciting. I mean, I think we're to through a few buzzwords just now, uh, but I think for, for me, what I took out of it, I, I love the whole, you know, like, let's fix it before it breaks. I mean, even last week we were speaking to um, a psychologist about generational trauma and mm-hmm. we were talking about, you know, the aspects of people seem to come to therapy when it's broken. But if you can almost build that person up, give them the coping skills, give them the knowledge and tools and skills. Before they reach that breaking point, that's kind of where we want to be. So yep. that's the reason that this this particular topic is resonating with me, although I don't understand it in its obviously full detail. Um, mm-hmm. But the buzzwords that seems to come up, Philip, is um, prediction mind model of the brain. The other one that comes up is active inference model. Are those other terms that, that seem to be um, synonymous with this?
1: Yes, so so predictive processing is probably the oldest and and longest kind of serving kind of term around this, probably twenty to thirty years, um, maybe a bit longer when it when it comes to that particular way of seeing the seeing the brain and how the brain interacts with the world. Active inference and active inference model is uh, a step beyond that, where it looks at a specific part of it, but also. It's almost like a term for one part of this model, but also looks at this whole model from a particular perspective. So, so yeah, the like, if if I can quickly kind of just um summarize this model, say from predictive processing, is the sense that the brain makes sense of the world by it's using its best guess of what's outside of it. So, if you think about the brain, the brain is. Encased in a solid skull, it doesn't have direct access to, to the world outside. So it has to make sense of what is in the world by sensory information, literally like um you know, kind of information that comes through all the sensory organs. It doesn't have a clear picture, it doesn't have a clear sound. It has to make sense of all of that and integrate that into a picture of what is actually happening. Now In the past, like what we've thought was that model gets built up from the bottom. So it's, you know, it's basically like a lens and you kind of see the world as it is and you start by, you know, like colors and shapes and, you know, and then you kind of build in the detail. But what's come from this um, research over the last 20, 30, 40 years is more the, uh, the weird idea that we're not actually seeing what's outside we are actually building that picture and then just comparing it. So one, one really interesting neuroscientist, Anil Seth, talks about it's basically a controlled hallucination. We don't see what's outside. We see our best guess what is outside. So when we've got that these predictions about the world, we, we build a model. We build a model and then we... We don't see what is there. We see what we predict. And we only change that if the sensory information comes in and there's a there's a prediction error. Then we've got a choice. Do we update our model? Do we see the diff- different thing? Or do we do something um, to minimize that prediction error? And one way of doing that is doing something to align our idea of the world, of our prediction of the world, and, and the world itself. And that part is called active inference. So inferring the you know the the cause of those sensory signals, but actively doing something to make it align with our with our model.
0: That is absolutely fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. No, that, that is absolutely fascinating for me. And yeah, um, you know, the last time we were talking about phobias, and it was kind of on the same. Aspect, you know, and and I think to be clear, I mean, this is obviously on the neuroscience kind of branch, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of psychology, and um, I can't help but think then, so what would be the inputs then for the brain to start formulating its model on the world?
1: That, and that's the fascinating part. Um, another neuroscientist that, and once again, I'll, I'll kind of rattle off all these names at the end as well. That because they they're all kind of influential in the way that I think about um, the the brain and, and like this this uh, particular framework. But the the one guy is called um, Andy Clark, um, and he's a neuroscientist that also works in the predictive processing um, field, and. He, he wrote a book called Surfing Uncertainty and he he talks about exactly that that, um, that problem almost that we've got is if we cons- if the way that we sense the world um, is predicting and then comparing, like basically updating if we need to, if there's a difference between our prediction and the world, prediction error, then how do we start? and and it's and he explains this kind of bootstrapping model where you just predict from the start you kind of with an inbuilt set of parameters say say as as mammals we've got these attachment needs so in a sense even though this is not necessarily what he says but this is kind of a um like extra what what we've kind of put together is like we've got these attachment needs a need for safety a need for kind of feeling out that we kind of in in control in a in a way um and a need for connection with others as well as a need for kind of resources in general right to know that there's enough now obviously we don't like consciously think that as, as we we're born, but we act that, that we need to get resources. We need to get nourishment. We need to have that connection and we need to kind of feel like we can um, make change. And like over the whole thing is that sense of, we want to be safe, you know, we want to survive. So the sense is that from those early needs, we predict. So we predict that we're going to have all of that. And then we start kind of adapting. So you predict, you make an error, then you update. You predict, you make an error, error and you update. So that's that's kind of the learning that takes place. So there's kind of that bootstrapping model that the one doesn't necessarily come in front of the other. Like they they happen at the same time to build kind of this gen, what they call generative models. And you build generative models of the world um, and of yourself as well in that world because they're not separate. So, so yeah, so that's in kind of a, a simple way, an oversimplified way of how this process would start.
0: That is so many, that is like so beautiful in, in many terms, because I can't help but think it's like, it's almost like the brain gives you the perfect opportunity to be in the perfect world. And then as you get, I'm going to say it very strongly, but as you get beaten down at every angle, it kind of changes its model. And I think it comes with like trust as well. It's like, you know, people always say, I'll trust you implicitly until you start breaking down that trust rather than the other way around. I don't trust you and you have to Mm. build up the trust. Is that maybe another way of looking at it? So almost like it's the perfect model. And then every time, you know, there's a flow in the system, like you said, it seems to like reshape itself.
1: Yeah. And there's there's a couple of implications and a couple of things around that. Like I said, yes, I agree that the, the model is that optimal model. So you, you're you born with that optimal model, and that's that's where you start. And then, like I said, you get beaten down in different ways, um, and it could be to a greater extent or a lesser, lesser extent that that happens. But I guess the implication of that is if we start with that optimal model, it's not something we ever have to relearn. It's there already. Like if you, if you've got that model and you and you update that model as you go, as life goes wrong in a sense, if we kind of think about our clients in, in psychotherapy you know, consultation rooms, we don't have to relearn how to trust. We don't have to relearn how to feel okay with ourselves. We don't have to relearn to just be okay in the world and feel generally safe because we we've been that, we started there. So all we have to do is we have to update the learning if something in the learning got stuck. And this is the this is the and I mean I'm jumping like 20 steps here, but but that is understanding how this model of the brain that is as close to what it actually does as we can currently see, to actually using that information and using that those the way that the brain naturally works to undo when things go awry, so I think that's yeah that that's the beauty of of that that part.
0: Mm. That is pretty profound as well. I mean, uh, I think um, because everything that I know as well and everything that I believe at the moment is that we have to t- retrain based on what perfection could be. And, you know, it seems to be that, um, you know, this kind of aligns with some of the AI stuff. Uh, I hate to throw down the AI stuff, but I mean, like, it's. Um, I'm currently doing a master's in computer science and, you know, my topic is around like cancer detection and classification. And so on the AI models, you you train it on what cancer could be and then mm-hmm. it kind of learns that, you know, but but it doesn't know that implicitly. But what you're saying is that it almost like it knows that implicitly. It mm-hmm. already knows what, you know what is perfection, and now yeah. you're trying. You know it's it's kind of getting different feedback, Um, yeah. and I think you know to, trying to sorry uh, trying to correlate it with the early childhood kind of basis because that seems to come out very strongly. You know the different age groups and how pivotal you know certain age groups are. Then would okay. you say in the early childhood, you know, the brain is almost looking more actively for for input in terms of test to test its hypothesis in the world.
1: Well, it has to because it's got a very incomplete model. So, so I guess you know, as as the brain develops and keeps on building that generative model, it it, it's constantly making prediction errors, constantly and making big ones as you go along. So, so it's almost like that that over your life that becomes less obvious when you kind of make big prediction errors and you have to um, adjust to that for a couple of reasons. I think you know, as you know, as Children go, you know, generally you make a lot of prediction errors, your predictions aren't you know aligned to the world. And so as you as you learn, you become better at those. So I think that's definitely that steep learning curve early on. But also um, when it comes to safety, like psychopathology happens when it happens in childhood, um, then it seems to get really stuck uh, for for a few reasons that we can go into, but but yeah i think there is this you know as uh, with my limited knowledge in this field at this point i would say yes like because you're constantly updating that model of the world and the model of yourself as you go through it like that's that's part of that learning as well
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I definitely want to come into the you know how does it get unstuck and or stuck but mm-hmm. again i mean just you know reveling on how amazing that uh, that is in terms of it, because then we could argue then that people are inherently good, you know, and there's no, you know, what people always talk about, you know, in social psychology, which is, you know, like people are people inherently good, or like, do you have to learn that, uh, you know, and stuff like that, which is, you know, has huge ramifications in terms of yeah. how you deal with people and things like that. Um, and w- when you say, uh, you know, how does it get stuck, uh, we'll come c- come to that, and maybe it's related. But you you do get the outliers, you know, the sociopaths and the you know the serial killers and all of those kind of things. It is I mean, are you saying that with them as well? From what you know, anyway, um, they started with that basis of actually the world is perfect. And
1: so yeah, I think most people um, would, unless there is like they, I mean. One of the big things that could happen as well is, is we were assuming normal brain development, no brain injury in, in any way, kind of chemical or physical, would occur. Because if there is, then it might might change, right? But assuming kind of normal brain development, most things are generally fine. Um, also, having the benefit of working within the criminal justice field. So, I've, you know, for the best part of 10 years, I've worked in, in prisons and, and dealt with a lot of people who are described as psychopaths or psychopathic. So, you know, technically they would score very high on the a psychopathy checklist, um, either screening version or revised version, which would, which was kind of the more technical way of looking at someone who's a psychopath. Or psychopathic who's got strong psychopathic traits even with them from all my experience working with them like right, they didn't have nice childhoods like they had usually a lot of trauma usually a lot of physical trauma some sexual trauma so if you if you look at the way that they adapted their generative models It makes a lot of sense and it makes a lot of sense to them when I explain to them this model and say, listen, if you started by, you know, kind of feeling safe, wanting to be, to feel safe, feeling like you're good, generally, you know, I'm okay. I'm good enough. Other people can be trusted and there's enough resources to go around. If that, if you have, if you run into prediction errors when it comes to those, those basic things, you have to update the way that you update isn't always the same. So I see clients in my private practice who go through trauma. I see clients in prison who go through trauma. And a lot of times they they may go through similar types of trauma, but the way that they update their generative models of themselves and the world are starkly different. Whereas say the, the clients in the private practice would be more Um, you know, they would generally more kind of downplay their own significance. So they would say, I'm really bad. I'm horrible. I must kind of, you know, um, hold on to other people. Other people, you know, even if other people will hurt me, I have to kind of cling. I have to do that. Or Um, I'm really bad. I can't trust other people um, and and just kind of sit on the sidelines. Whereas, uh, say, clients in prison, a lot of time, they elevate their sense of self. So they're like, I'm the only one I can trust. I'm really good. Everyone else is really bad. And in order to do that, in order to mess with these internal levels that the brain has there for survival, it becomes... Almost easier for them, or the brain has to, if they hurt other people, to dial down some of that em- empathetic responses that's dialed in the brain, there for us to not hurt each other, so that we don't get kicked out of the tribe and you know don't survive. So all all of those ways of dealing with massive prediction errors, massive differences between our way of predicting and the way that that we experience the world the way that we deal with that and the way that we update if we update is can be vastly different but it's one mechanism once you understand that then things that look completely different start to you start to see the similarities you start to see how someone who's psychopathic and you know and someone who's got PTSD well even though they might have PTSD as well it presents really differently and it's like it must be two different things Not on if you understand the underlying mechanism. So that's a long, very long-winded way of saying, you know, there's a, you know, it it applies even in there that it's not it's not something that's qualitatively different about someone who's say you know has got strong psychopathic traits. It's just a different way of dealing with the same prediction errors. And if you understand that and you can trace it back to where that comes from, then you can start looking at how can you change that.
0: Mm, yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, I think it would uh, make a lot of sense to a lot of people in terms of, you know, how they f- they frame it and they say, you know, but, you know, I would assume that everyone's kind of good when they started off. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we covered that in the in the other show, you know, and it's, I really, you know, feel honored to, to have someone like you on, you know, that has experience in a criminal, you know, justice systems or criminal systems and can kind of because I would say that that's probably the the worst part of society, you know, when someone really got it wrong, you know, and they're mm. getting obviously punished for it uh, in the most severe way. But, um, you know, for the rest of us, you know, that are just trudging along life and, you know, obviously, you know, have our, our normal issues of burnout and, and stress and anxiety and stuff like that, it obviously presents in different ways. But we haven't hit that kind of level for the most part. Um I do want to make it a little bit more tangible though. So so as I mentioned in the last episode, we spoke about generational trauma. So like, uh, or or any type of trauma or any type of anxiety. And and anxiety is an interesting one because that seems to be coming up so often. I mean, obviously on the back of COVID and everything else. But if someone is coming through and they're presenting on anxiety, how, how would a typical, I mean, based on what you know now, and I'm not sure if this is something that you're actively applying In all cases, but uh, how would how would the the uh, approach change for someone like that from a therapy point of view? I mean, uh, I think uh, you know, in order to help that person in the most effective way, because I think most of the time it's like talking through it. You know, obviously understanding where the patterns are, understanding where the you know the anxiety or the trauma kind of came from, and then kind of going from there
1: definitely so so i guess when you when you go with this model and you use this model to conceptualize a client or conceptualize what they're going through you generally again go to we know that they're constantly predicting and there may be prediction errors and if there is something that they get stuck on basically if there is a prediction error and they're not updating what they need to update so you know if I'm standing in front of a group of people and I get socially anxious, and I'm really anxious. I'm I'm definitely predicting something will happen if I stand here and talk to all these people, right? So my whole body is reacting in a way like this is this is threatening. There's a uh, safety concern here, which is, well, in most cases, not accurate. So you get the prediction error coming back that to say, oh, this is not. You're not dying. No one's getting up and you know, kind of booing you off stage. And even then, they do, like, what's the significance of that? So there's like those prediction errors come through, but clients may get stuck. You know, it's not like you, you're very anxious before, and then two minutes, and you're like, I oh, didn't have anything to be anxious about. You update that model next time you talk in front of people. You're all good. That's that's an update occurring based on the pr- uh, prediction error. But if that doesn't happen. There's something that makes that learning that in this situation I have to be on edge. I have to be prepared. Got stuck somewhere. So then we trace back. Where did that get stuck? Like where? Where did you get the learning that this is really, like, really anxiety provoking, or should be? You know that that you must be aware of something that that goes on. And there's a lot of different ways that it, a lot of different reasons why it could be. So you trace it back to the the learning memory where you, where you've got that. And I think you know, for myself, I can remember it like I had a lot of anxiety and talking in front of people. But I had it up until I think I was about sixteen or seventeen, and then all of a sudden I would start. You know, I I struggled. And my like breath goes away, and I'm like all dry mouth. And it like there was a specific learning where I was about 16 or 17, standing up in front of class, and delivering a speech that I didn't prepare for. And I started kind of struggling through it. And then I got really anxious. And and felt really embarrassed. And this meant a lot to me at the time because I was academically quite strong at that point and kind of, and that meant a lot. So that almost kind of got stuck. And um, that only got unstuck by um by actually doing it over and over and over and over again, kind of doing trainings and all of that to this point where I don't really get that anymore, which is unfortunate because if I knew this framework then I could have gone back to that earliest memory um, because all we need to do is go back to that learning memory and look at the meaning that you made from that learning memory and then help the client to reinterpret what was going on at that point. Because what happened there was my model was I'm fine talking in front of people. I'm totally good. This kind of had connections to how I felt about myself in general then I have this experience where this is so different to what I'm what I'm used to. And the way that I updated was, oh, no, I'm actually quite bad at this, even though that's not a really accurate interpretation to make in that specific example, but that's the one that I made. And then every time I struggled because I was anxious, like that confirmed that. So you've got this learning memory, and then you've got all these confirming memories, these confirming experiences that just solidify this pattern. And the only way to undo that is to go back to that early, the early learning, like the original learning, and help the client work through that in order to update. And there's a specific way that you have to do that because you have to kind of get the predicting brain, um, you know, kind of going and reinterpret that, that experience. Because if I, you know, if I had someone helping me through that experience at that point, it would have been easier to say, oh, it's not that you're bad, you just, you didn't actually prepare for this. This happens when you don't prepare. It's fine. Normally you're quite good. And so there's like, but I didn't, and I kind of made that interpretation on my own and then ran with it. So, so yeah, so that that's kind of the practical side of how you would, would go about, yeah, changing that.
0: Yeah. Mm. Thanks so much for making that so tangible as well with that with that personal story. I mean, I think that that helps us tremendously in terms of thinking about it. Um, and you you led on there just now, but I'm going to let you carry on going in terms of so. How, how would you help someone in that moment, like to get unstuck?
1: So that where it, that's where it gets a little bit more technical. Um, like the way that you would do it is depending on the kind of skills and frameworks that you've used in the past. Um, you have to use therapeutic memory reconsolidation to work through that in a a very specific way. So memory reconsolidation is the general idea in uh, psychology and psychotherapy where, you know, in the past we had the idea that memories are just recordings that you just pull up. But the, what that's actually not that accurate. Like every time that you have a memory or bring bring up a memory, that gets reactivated. It's not stored somewhere in the brain. So every time it gets reactivated, um, it, it's you can change it. you can edit it. And if you think about it, if you if you know someone for a long time and then all of a sudden you know you've got this friend, Um, you know, and you know them all your life, and, um, you know, for the last 20 years, and then you find out all all that time, you know, they were a double agent for some other country, and you would go and revisit all those memories, everything would change um, for you in terms of that you'll kind of revisit that whole whole relationship that you've had, Um, you know, something like infidelity works the same way, all of a sudden, it's not everything from now you go and revisit all of that so that the sense that you can change memories um, or update them in terms of what they mean and what significance they have. So that's the idea that, that you can edit memories. You can't you know, change what happened, but you can change the significance of that and how that can then update your model of yourself and your model of the world. So you would use um, that therapeutic memory consolidation um technique and framework to intervene here, knowing that you're working at the predictions um, and you're working at the meaning that they got out of that experience and, and helping them update that. So I know that's not, that doesn't necessarily bring you any closer, but it's a it's a it's a it's a quite a few step process where you have to get them to engage in that early learning, the original learning, you have to kind of get them activated in terms of that. So I have, they have to kind of really feel like they're there They kind of, you know, close their eyes and go in and experience that's, you know, people who do EMDR or BWRT would, would know this kind of process pretty well. And what you would do, you'd go look for the things that they were expecting, the needs that they had, the outcomes that they wanted in that experience because those were all the predictions that they had. And then you look at the prediction error. What actually happened? You look at the prediction error, and then you get them to, or you help them to update that prediction error by looking at different interpretations, different ways of of seeing the same experience. And then when you do that in a very specific way, then and kind of continuing going back and forwards in, in this way, what happens is then, an update actually happens where they can actually now have a prediction error based on that experience that they had and then reinterpret that experience and what that means for them and what that means for the world. And then when the generative model updates, then it all just shifts, which is the really remarkable thing with this kind of work is – when you get it to shift it shifts pretty remarkably and uh you know one of the things that again kind of using myself as, as an example um i guess it, it's one of those things that a lot of professionals deal with a lot of people generally deal with but a lot of professionals um you know, in psychology we've we've uh, got the, always got the sense that everyone else knows what they're doing except us so the kind of imposter syndrome is rife in psychology and, and and generally in people, there's that sense that I'm not good enough. So that can drive, um, again, their react people's reaction to that could be, well, it doesn't matter if I try or I have to do everything perfectly. Nothing I do will ever be good enough. So there's that sense that I'm not good enough. Again, that's not how we were born. So that update must have happened at some point. Again, experiences that we had, that we interpret in a specific way to update our model of ourselves as I'm not good enough. Now, again, that means different things for different people. So if I'm not good enough, maybe I drive myself to work 15-hour days because otherwise it'll be catastrophic. Whereas for someone else, they are like, they might say, well, I'm not good enough. Why should I try? So they then can't actually do anything that they would have done. So the way that you update that, again, is going to the original learning, reinterpreting those prediction errors that they made and seeing one of two things. Are there different ways that they could have interpreted that at the time or could they now interpret it differently to how they did back then? And with safety, that's one big thing, say for kids who have to update their general models of the world as this extremely unsafe place. Um, you know, I work with someone who was severely physically abused when she was very young, so two, three, four, five, six. And to go back and to re- try and reinterpret those experiences as not unsafe is stupid because they are. Oh, that was a very accurate interpretation. And an update that she made that the world is this extremely unsafe place. There was none, no other way that you could she could have updated at that point, given the knowledge to dis, uh, you know disposal at that point. But we can now make an update to say yes. At that point, the world was really dangerous and really unsafe. However, now it isn't anymore. You know, if if it isn't, you know, unless it still is but to kind of look at the, that difference and try and make that update that way. So, so, yeah, so that's the way that you would would use it kind of in a session or with a client and conceptualizing the, the the problem. And, yeah, and I think one of the things that I maybe haven't mentioned before is one of the key things with this whole model of, say, with prediction psychology, which encompasses the idea of the brain as a prediction engine and then how to use this knowledge to actually um, understand client psychopathology health and and illness but also then once you get stuck how to get someone back so how to update the model again to get them um well again and like we said we now have to relearn how to be well we just have to go back to that original um state that that we we had and this model um, is very different to the model of the brain that we unfortunately use in psychology you know the brain that we use in psychology unfortunately popular popularized um you know in in the 80s and 90s of that triune brain model you know, we've got the prefrontal cortex, we've got the limbic system, we've got the, the reptilian complex or the, the brain stem. You know, it's d- three different parts. You know, this whole kind of hand model of the brain, it's super catchy, unfortunately, um, and it's inaccurate. The idea that it gives is this idea that you don't have one brain, you've got three brains. You know, it's, it's one brain, but it's kind of three parts, and they're kind of in, you know... Um, in conflict. So, you know, your, your, your rational part is constantly fighting this irrational part and this, this emotive part. And, you know, and, and, and the way to deal with that is if you've got a big emotion, you have to regulate that. So there's a there's a regulation model of the brain and how the brain works that is actually very inaccurate. Right? And, and the way that people deal with it, and myself as well in the past is to say, you know, it's biologically, it's not that accurate, but it's useful and i think the more i get into this space i realize that no it's actually it's actually very unuseful it's very um it's it's actually quite bad for us when we try and conceptualize clients because then everything becomes coping strategies regulation but there's no there's no way to change easily change is elusive because it's just hard work, and you have to, you know, kind of want to regulate our limbic system and all of that. And that whole model of the brain is completely inaccurate. Like, a, and this is a lot closer to to the truth when it comes to because this came from neuroscience. It, it's not in psychology that oh maybe the brain is a predictive engine. No, it's neuroscientists who said oh my soul we don't we don't see we predict. How amazing is that? Who would have guessed? And then they ran with that. And then, and then now it's trickling over into psychology. So it's not a, it's not a, oh, this seems like a nice explanation. How can I kind of generalize that? This is a oh wow, this is actually the closest that we know at the moment of how the brain may work. One of the main functions of the brain may be this predictive, you know, ability. And how can we use now that quite accurate idea of how the brain works? And and apply that to our clients, to how we function, to how how we can thrive. How if we get stuck, you know, how, when there's psychopathology, how can we get back to you know back to well-being? So and and this is the good and the bad of this, because it's I, the difficulty is that I've had to update my model of psychology the more i've thrown myself into this work and and it's difficult if you've if you've had cbt all your life well all your professional life or psychodynamic theory you know you have to kind of throw yourself into this in a way that you can actually update if an updates needed but i think psychology itself is in this kind of loop between predicting comparing to the world and like updating its model is still not actually updating its model. Psychology as a whole is a bit stuck, and that's one of the reasons why you know I'm I'm kind of getting into this, and you know I really want to write a book that kind of highlights this whole process for you know lay people. And the colleague of mine wants to write one for psychologists, um, and it's how to how to get people to understand that the way that you thought the brain works isn't actually supported by evidence. It's not you that's bad that's thought this is how the brain works we all did like we were kind of sold this this model of the brain for a long time um but given this new information we may need to update but when we do we get so much in terms of a model that understands human behavior understands when things go wrong and also understands how we can make how we can get clients out of out of psychopathology back to well-being, but also, like you said, not just that, to thriving. Like, if we know this, then then that pathway makes sense. It's not this piecemeal, disparate way of looking at, at illness. It's like, okay, so illness is actually when this and this and this happens, when we get stuck, when our, when our predictions about the world aren't updating, when they should be updating, and that's, you know, that's an oversimplification, but in essence, that's that's kind of what we see with our clients.
0: I mean, that is actually so powerful, hey? Eh? And I think you didn't hold any punches there <laughs> in terms of how you how you frame that, which I actually love. Um, on the books part, I mean, definitely let me know, you know, as soon as you have that available, I mean, uh, I'd definitely love to put that in all of our resources uh, because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, and our last one we spoke about, and, and maybe this is a good, you know, good part to talk about the other, other area that I, I mentioned. So a few a few episodes ago, we spoke about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And I thought, uh, you know, what uh, Brad and his team are doing was, like, pretty amazing. I mean, I thought, you know, even the way he talked about it, you know, like, making the brain a little bit more pliable to the therapy. And I thought, that's a really cool way, you know, of, of thinking about it. And it's, like, definitely edgy, but definitely, and it kind of makes sense for me. How does this, what you're telling us today, uh, that, is there any correlation in terms of the work that he's doing there?
1: Yes, most definitely. So once you again see the see the brain in this unified framework of understanding health and well being and illness and how to get from you know from illness to well being using this predictive framework, uh, it makes absolute sense why. They have so much, um, you know, positivity that comes out of that um, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Because what happens during those periods of time, it when they, you know, go into the dissociative state with, say, the ketamine or MDMA to a certain extent as well, and to the psilocybin and LSD-assisted um, psychotherapies. Is in slightly different ways, but it opens up possibilities. So again, it creates prediction errors. So if so, you know, I I know less about ketamine assisted psychotherapy, but I know a little bit more about MDMA um, assisted psychotherapy with MDMA assisted psychotherapy with um, treatment resistant um, trauma PTSD. So what happens there in the way that again, like my knowledge about this is, is still, is not that broad, but if you look at what it might say is if you give someone MDMA, like what seems to happen is the f- general fear response goes down, right? So there's, um, in the amygdala, like it down regulates or it lessens the fear as it relates to how it's um, experienced in the amygdala and the rest of the brain. So what happens if you normally have this experience in your mind of this horrific thing that may have happened that created this PTSD? What could happen when you have that memory and that experience comes up and you experience again and again and again? When you have MDMA and that drops that level of fear, what can happen is a massive prediction error. The mind is like, ah, I expected this to have this effect. I expected to have this introspective experience of this memory, but I don't. And it's basically, okay, I'm listening. So there's that uh, prediction error that, that gets created. Now, if you do nothing else and just, so it's not like, you know, you've got trauma, you go to a club, you take MDMA and you party away and then it's gone. It creates the opportunity for the brain to update. Because it creates that really big prediction error. If you then work through that trauma by talking through the trauma, what it meant, what it meant for you at the time, what it meant about the world, how you interpreted it at the time, and how you can maybe, um, how we can think about make sense of that now as you're sitting here, you know, say with war vets, you're not in Iraq anymore, you're not in Afghanistan anymore, you know, you're not unsafe. When you were there, yes, you were, but not now. Then the brain can update, because it's had that prediction error. And sometimes, you know, and what we kind of, I think we will be in 5 to 10 to 15 years if, you know, I guess myself and a few other people do our jobs right, is that this will be mainstream where you can go to a psychologist to, you know, help you update. But if it's so extreme or the way that you are um, getting stuck isn't something that we can kind of deal with, with normal kind of talking way of getting to that point, maybe you need psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, or ketamine to open up that prediction area so that you can have then the opportunity to deal with it. And, you know, and it opens up kind of a lot of other avenues as well. So there are different ways of creating prediction errors. And in psychotherapy, we can do a lot of that. But then when we can't, or when there's specific brain reasons why we can't, maybe we then go to psychedelics or, you know, dissociatives, or we go to, you know, uh, other ways of directly kind of trying to deal with the brain in order to create those prediction errors. So all of a sudden, it's not a, you either do this or that or CBT or, you know, ketamine or LSD or psilocybin. It all in one framework, you can identify what would be the best way to get the brain to update. And and everyone knows that, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 15 years, we'll, we'll know that, yeah, if, if it presents in this way, then yeah, you do your psychotherapy. If it presents in this way, you have to kind of do ketamine along with that or maybe more psilocybin because you're hitting a, a, a different way of, of dealing with it. So it makes perfect sense from that. It doesn't only do that. So I guess like the ketamine and the, the well, psilocybin at least, I know a little bit more about the way that interacts with the brain is not just creating a production error. It also creates a lot of other opportunities of things that can happen. So it kind of downregulates um, the areas in the brain where you kind of view yourself in a specific way. So there's kind of that sense of ego dissolution where you don't feel like you're yourself anymore. You just kind of you know it's porous. Kind of so aspects of that, I think, within this framework it becomes a lot more useful to ask, what is that? What is that about? Like, how can we use that in in more kind of surgical ways rather than just doing it and seeing what happens and then trying to deal with it? Because we don't have a framework to make sense of what we see when things go wrong. And within this framework, all of that starts making a lot of sense. And we can be a lot more surgical in terms of how we deal with a problem that someone doesn't have to go through two, three, four years of psychotherapy before they get to a point where they can actually um, get change. Like right? hopefully in the future we get a lot quicker and identifying the problems and, and being able to like really go where we need to go.
0: Mm. Thanks so much for collaborating that as well, because I, I thought that was fascinating, you know, like mm. the, the fact you can do it. And I think what you did was you just amped it up so much more in terms of saying, okay, that's why it's working right now. And this is how we can do it differently. And I, and I really like your spin, and you know your your view on the world that at some point it's um it's almost like you have these knives. You know, like in in you know, like the the chefs use it in a certain way. But yes, you can cut yourself if you do it. You know, like if you do it wrong. But yeah. in the right hands with the right people, it's going to be pretty powerful. Yeah. And um, so I, I like that idea of you know like going in and and. And, and I think that's why CBT and BWGRT have, have started getting so much more traction you know, in terms of people wanting to to get that fix, you know, or fix their lives very quickly. And and without the, you know, the four years of psychotherapy or, you know, in a psychodynamic kind of setting, maybe. Um, not to say that it's wrong, but I mean, it's obviously just seems to be what, what, what seems to be happening and how people are reacting to it. Uh, but I love that. The, you know, we, we spoke about, about phobias in the last uh, episode as well, many, many, many episodes ago. But uh, since then, um, I was doing her research now as well on, on um, well, one, one part of it was around phobias and, 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 and using VR technology. You know, and, and part of the research was that like anxiety anxiety is one of the, you know, the precursors to lots of these disorders, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I'm interested to take your your view on it, but do you see like with phobias? Um, and I mean, I think in the last episode I mentioned how we got over her, her fear of snakes as an example. And but it's this this controlled um, experience where you get exposed to the pho- the thing that's causing you phobia. Have you come across anything around research and around what we're talking about today in terms of how maybe technology could help us with that?
1: not not directly with how technology can help us, but um, I think there's, like you said, technology itself and kind of especially around VR is extremely potent, powerful around this. Um, because when you think about it, you can then start creating those experiences where, you know, you expose someone to that experience and in such a way that they can then you know, create that prediction error and update. So there's different ways that you can do that and, and using technology such as VR. But even uh, apps, My um, this colleague of, of, of mine, we've been talking about. So if we were to create an app, where someone would go through the process of dealing with a phobia, what would that look like? You know, so you know, you would, you would kind of have to have an experience that they can pull up. You'd have to have that sense of how they're going to create that prediction error. And you have to get a sense of how to help them make that update. And for something like a phobia, yeah, you can create an app for that. Uh, you know, if someone's got multiple traumas from, you know, four years old to now when they're like 50 years old and, you know, they're suicidal and all of that, yeah, don't use the app that's going to be, you know, not appropriate for the level of, you know, um, attention you need around all of that. But with things like phobias, with things like the sense of not being good enough, you know, so generally if your life's fine, but you just feel like, man, I'm just not as good as other people. And that's just kind of a solid learning that I think is, imagine you can create nap where we can help people through this process even though it might be a little bit longer than say a phobia where we could get some uh, you know someone with that feeling to go back and to update that so that they just feel good enough just imagine kind of how much of the world in one shot could be changed with an app like that so that is that's my kind of in the back of my mind that this is the power of this. Once we understand how the brain works, understand how we get stuck, and understand how we get unstuck, like this, this gets so much easier to 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 get to people where they, you know, you have to be pretty stuck and pretty um, generally struggling to see a psychologist. So not everyone's got a you know, um, connection with a psychologist if they if they just generally are not thriving as much as they want to. So in order to get it out to a lot of people, um, we have to kind of think more than just psychologists or therapists. They definitely need it because there's still a lot of people that need that level of tension. Um, but going further, I think will be VR, will be apps, will be those kind of immersive experiences that can help someone kind of guide them through that process where they don't need as much attention and safeguards um, around say their own safety if they've got suicidal ideation and, and things like that so i think you know if ethics around that's going to be really important but i think the opportunities there um are are quite limitless when you think about what you can do once you've got this unified framework and and, and you've got people who understand that and who buy into it.
0: Mm. Thanks so much for saying or oh, or oh, your thoughts on that as well because I mean I think for me, you know what's been absolutely fascinating with the show is is meeting people like yourself and and in my own mind, it's like putting these different things together. you know, obviously I come from a technology kind of background. And kind of, you know, as these things kind of come up, I'm thinking, you know, you know, when I hear you speak and I hear some of, you know, the other uh, practitioners speak in a, in a, and I kind of put that in my mind and I think we're looking forward, you know, to, to a world which is gonna be phenomenally different in terms of how we approach it. I think the one thing over the last few years that, and maybe starting with COVID is, is, is people starting to say, actually the world is a bit smaller. You know, like we can actually reach, like we're doing now, you know, from Mm. the UK to New Zealand in a, you know, in a, you know, one hour kind of talk and do something amazing. And Mm. I think a few years ago, they were still very small minded, you know, people didn't think on those levels. And it was, although we had the telephone and we had WhatsApp and all of those things, it still seemed pretty, you know, it still seemed, um, you know, it was a, a, a huge stretch of the imagination. But I really love this. I love your tangible aspects around the apps as well, um, because that makes sense. Um, and the reason I thought of phobia was because it's the same thing. It's sometimes like an irrational fear. And if you go back to that first experience, and that's what we found with the snake, you know, the handling course that we, uh, we went through, it's actually snakes don't behave like that. You know, whatever my wife had in the mind wasn't exactly mm-hmm. what they do. They do actually the opposite. And it just exposing to her, her to that, although it was, you know, quite difficult, but yeah. completely revolutionized, you know, her thinking and the phobia to a large extent just dissipated, which was yeah. incredible. So it kind of goes with exactly what you're saying right now. It goes mm-hmm. with going back to that experience, you know, relearning it in a way and giving the brain that, that idea to unblock itself and say, actually, no, that was a blip. You got it wrong there.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's that update. Hmm. The logic is in that update.
0: How long does that update take? I know you mentioned it. I was going to it. I still took the notes down. But once you, once a person has believed that actually this was a glitch or you know a blip in the in the system, how long does that update take? Is it immediate, or is they do they have to rationalize that to themselves? Is there a way that that happens?
1: Generally, it's it's pretty immediate. So that, like, the brain kind of stays in that edit mode or open state for a while, um, you know, for a few hours or a day or so. Or, so I think I'm less clear on exactly kind of the science around that. But what seems to happen is it's pretty pretty immediate. What then has to occur is you then have to um, adapt to the update. And in, in a sense, you have to kind of then make sense of what this means. So again, like a, a personal like example around that is, like I ran through this and I don't, and, and I think kind of, I wouldn't necessarily believed it so strongly, I wouldn't have said immediate, like had I not first gone through that and then taken clients through that. Um, but I kind of tr- went through a, a similar process myself once I learned this, I said, I want to see how this runs. So I kind of did that with with one of the, like with the trainer, and then um, updated kind of a sense of, again, kind of this imposter, I'm not actually good enough underneath, you know, very critical voice that literally dissipated. Once we've gone through the process in minutes, um, it's been a year since then. So it's been June pretty much beginning of June since we went through that process where I've always had a very critical voice and kind of very perfectionistic and driven in terms of I have to do things because I'm not good enough gone. And that's a fascinating thing that I still like, I know this, I read like it makes sense to me, but when it happens, it's still, it was immediate. I felt kind of the ripple effects across different parts. um, And then just it, like that critical voice kind of looking in the mirror and just not feeling anything besides like yep that's that's you um as yeah was was pretty revolutionary in terms of um yeah me and, and and my view of myself that model of myself that updated was was quite remarkable
0: okay again you know that personal experience which is incredible um uh, relating back to that that episode that I mentioned about generational trauma, it was exactly what you said. Now it's like um, you know, in in the demographic of people that you know that psychologist was talking about, uh, Sinam and uh, Naran, she was talking about. Uh, it's almost like they go the opposite extreme as well. They become very driven people. They become very you know, it's almost like um, everything that they knew, they do. You know, they become a lot more ambitious and and stuff like that. To the point where they actually you know, they, they cause their own demise in terms of burnout and stress and anxiety mm. and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So
1: the model, the model stays the same. It's just the, what they do. The, the behavior shifts. I mm. might think that they're useless, but the way that they deal with that, they the behave. Because no prediction goes without an action every prediction and perception about the world has got the question, you know, what is happening? Uh, What is it? What is, what's the impact on me? And what should I do about it? So no perception or or prediction goes without an action. So, and and the action might, like you said, someone who's got that sense might, you know, one might become a drug addict and one might become so anti-drugs and so you know, but the underlying model might be the same. Just the, the behavior might be more healthy, but it's still an unhealthy kind of sense of self. They're still stuck just in a healthier pattern. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, very, I mean, very, very interesting, you know, seeing how those things tie up and, um, mm. and Philip on the ethical considerations around, the, you know, this type of, of, of work. Is there anything that springs to mind to you? And I think you used the word just now. I just want to make sure we clearly ask it as well. Yeah,
1: I think one of the things that that jump out with this kind of work is once you start kind of pulling out the predictions of of anyone, it gets pretty deep pretty quickly. So it it you you kind of delve down pretty quickly because you're using imagery and you're using kind of those predictions themselves. So it's easy, I think, for therapists or psychologists depending on your experience and your training, to find themselves quickly within a realm that is a little bit outside their scope. So I think that's that's a possibility. So I think as long again, as long as you know of that possibility and you kind of recognize when you're there in order to just back off a little bit and to kind of think that through, get supervision, um, talk it through and kind of think through the the options. You know, from there, I think that the positive about this framework is because you because you get pretty good at understanding where things come from. You know, you 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 start having these hypotheses or predictions. I guess kind of expectations of where your clients might be going, where a pattern like that might be coming from. So so you can also be quite intuitive in terms of knowing where not to go and where to go for certain clients. Um, But it gives you a good conceptualization of your client um, on the other side. Um, So it helps, it helps to kind of navigate that, that process. Uh, But I think that's one of the things that, that, that come up. And also, you know, to, I guess, to make sure that, you know, know the space, know what you're doing, know what kind of, um, techniques you're kind of tapping into um, before you just kind of go with it. Um, I think it's it's easy to start kind of running with the skills uh, without having that framework solid so that you then get stuck. Um, and that might kind of create, I guess, confirming memories or confirming experiences for the client that they can't be helped and you know, nothing works for them. So it's important to be to be quite gentle when it comes to approaching this with clients especially ones that you've worked with for a while that I've you know I've got a few clients that I've worked with for you know one to two to three years with a lot of different traumas a lot of different problems a lot of that pre-verbal so using kind of a new approach with them um, is kind of takes supervision takes um, thinking through takes preparing clients for that so I think that's because because this is a framework that that psychologists and, and, and therapists will get not at this stage, you know, entry level coming in. It's experienced therapists that have to have to kind of use that with say clients that they've um you know had for a while or with new clients, but it's still kind of learning the process, learning the framework. Um so yeah. Being okay. being considered and careful, I think, always. Mm,
0: and definitely more cautious, more conservative. Um, mm-hmm. And I like how you brought the scope aspects of it, which is always important. Um. The lead on question to that is any books or resources that you came across? I know you mentioned the Andy Clark one earlier mm-hmm. uh, in the episode. Um. Anything else that, that I know you said it's obviously kind of leading edge at the moment, but mm-hmm. uh, anything that you came across that would be useful other than your own books, obviously?
1: Uh, so the, the most useful book that I can recommend for anyone, whether you're a therapist or not, is Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About, about the Brain. It is non-technical, but it is very kind of, it's short. You can read it in uh, three to four hours, like and it's got these seven and a half lessons about the, the brain being a prediction engine. Um, The brain being one, not three, you know, not the and model. And then what that means as well, what that means for developing brains, what that means for us in communities, what that means for brains that can develop differently in different contexts. So so I think Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, if you read nothing else, start there. That is a brilliant book. She's also got a book, um, How Emotions Are Made. That's a bit longer and a bit more technical. I'm still working my way through that. Um, but then another book um, by Anil Seth um, called "Being You" is is also an amazing book. I've I've got it on pod um, on o- audiobooks. I've listened to it like three times. It's really good. And he he goes into more around how this model of the brain is a prediction engine then translate to consciousness. So being you and what that means. So it's it's also a fascinating read, but also very very easy going when it goes to um, when it comes to kind of the the brain model mm-hmm. um, they've got uh, lisa Felton barrett um, anil seth they've both got ted talks out there and other lectures and things on youtube so it's it's definitely useful to to kind of read through that um i i can even send you a, a list of like um four to five to six Um, journal articles that might be really useful for people if they want to dive in it a little bit deeper Um, where I've kind of started where I kind of think when you're educating yourself around this these couple of books and these journal articles are brilliant places to to start and then you know you you've got that that where to go from there
0: Mm, definitely and please do I mean we'll definitely include it in the in the show notes like we do for each episode just you know, create almost like a repository of all of the info, the audio, the videos, and, and all of that stuff. Um, I want to go back to. We, we have to start wrapping up soon, and I'll get your you know your closing thoughts. As with every episode, this was fascinating, and um, I don't think we'll do it any justice in the time. But uh, I think we learned a lot. I mean, I, I learned a lot, um, and I think you open up our minds to some 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 really not new information, but also tying it back to, you know, what we already covered in the show, you know, with different episodes, which I think is, you know, is the basis for any great research anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming back to, you know, how the brain formulates its, you know, you mentioned safety, you mentioned like, you know, this having this abundance kind of, you know, like the resources are not scarce. What, what were those factors again? So what would be, what, what would constitute like a healthy view on the world from the brain's perspective right at the beginning. So
1: this is you know kind of from the the basic human needs side kind of looking through that and 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 this is a little bit of a, an extrapolation hypothesis around what the brain um, maybe have as those buckets that that start off with. The major one is safety. So it's something on its own, but it also runs through everything else. So the first one is safety, the second one is self. So kind of the self as a an autonomous um organism that can, can create change and has efficacy. Then others or a social, kind of the social side, and then the the resources. So um, you know, the you know, things and yeah. You know, in nourishment, um, place to stay, that kind of thing. Um, so, as you can see, kind of safety is its own thing, but also runs through the idea of self, safety, and resources. Mm. So, my colleague is like says it's the four S's. So, it's the safety, self, social, and resources. So- <laughs> nice, <laughs> but, but still, okay, yeah. Okay. So, that's, that's. I mean, it's it's a lot more complicated, Matt, but I think those are useful buckets to to put it in and
0: to think through. You know, the reason I ask that is, is then you can tie back all of those things. Um, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, you know, like, and you can tie back those experiences, okay, to where, where did that happen? You know, was it a safety aspect? Was that, you know, uh, the fact that you thought, you know, you never had enough money to, to buy food as an example, you know, where, where did that kind of come from? And, uh, I thought from a model point of view, that would be absolutely, you know, imperative to understand. And mm-hmm. thanks for that. I'm not ever going to uh, forget that now, especially since you mentioned the four S's. <laughs> so great. Um, and then uh, also, I mean, maybe it's related, maybe it's not related, but but you are of New Zealand at the moment, and you mentioned, you know, we were talking about UK practitioners and South African practitioners. Have mm-hmm. you found that practitioners, you know, and whether it's, you know, part of the scope of this topic or not, but have you noticed any differences in how practitioners approach like therapy or you know, approach um, private practice?
1: Yes and no. I think, like, the, the differences between practitioners, I think, are mostly between practitioners and not necessarily between where they come from. Um, I think there there's similarities in the way, like, again, I think how South African psychologists or, or practitioners um, in the UK and Australia, New Zealand and Canada like generally my experience of obviously working in South Africa, but also working in New Zealand. But, you know, we're kind of, there's a lot of expats in in New Zealand. So having that contact, um, I guess it's more aligned to your training, what you were trained in, or you kind of the emphasis in your training rather than how people engage. But when it comes to more experienced practitioners, we tend to do similar things. I think I can remember like speaking to a, a lecturer in my honors year in, in Stellenbosch University and, and I asked him oh should I go to the university this one to do my masters because they're very strong in psychodynamic and I'm not sure about that and he's like you know what philip once there's a you know a, a, you know once you're experienced when you talk through what you do with clients and you know CBT and psych, uh, psychodynamic and whatever else schema and we kind of do the same things or kind of hover in the same areas. And and I think that talks to kind of psychology at large. Um, But I think generally psychologists, practitioners, therapists, try to be as effective they can and as short amount they can for for their clients and help their clients. I think that cuts across. So I I haven't seen major differences in, in how people practice. Um. Yeah.
0: Very long-winded on. I mean, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I think so. I mean it's, that was very insightful. I mean, I think. Uh, I think it would be it would have been a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you that. You know, especially since we spoke about it as well. And it's been mm-hmm. kind of my experience as well. You know, being in the UK, it's it's again, it's a small world. But mm-hmm. you know, practitioners seem to approach you know like how they view clients, how they you know help clients in a similar way. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. there's differences. But but it's been very um enlightening, you know, to see that. Um my last question and I'll give you closing thoughts, but obviously if, you know, this was a fairly new topic for me, but um and I tried the best way that we could to to prepare for it. But is there anything that you thought I should have asked you around prediction psychology that I didn't?
1: I, I don't think so. I think we can probably talk about it for for a week. Um, but, but yeah, I think, like, I feel that we've covered a good chunk for people to start kind of thinking about it, start reading about it and, and looking into it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I nothing that I can think of that's obvious. That wouldn't kind of cause another monologue for 20 minutes. So,
0: better <laughs> not. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Uh, I mean, like, it's like with everything. I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating for me that we could talk through some of these things. And, you know, after an hour and a bit, it still seems like we can talk for a few more hours, you know, and how amazing it is. I definitely get the sense from this topic. It seems um, like I did with the, with the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I thought it's, it's actually amazing, you know, where we are and how we could almost break the shackles of what we think it is. In order to you know to get better which i find is even more amazing and it's 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 amazing for me to see how psychologists are on the forefront of some of those developments as well which is like yourself which is amazing so on that note thanks philip again for for, for doing this thanks for all of your insight um i'd love to catch up again because you seem to be moving in you know leaps and bounds at the moment uh but yeah thanks for doing this
1: no worries. Thanks for having me again.
0: Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.